Christmas lights. Let's take an informal poll. Guys, guys, okay. Blessing or a curse? That's the question today. Are they a blessing or a curse? We're going we're gonna to vote on the count of three. If you believe they're a blessing, say ho, ho, ho. If you believe they're a curse, say bah humbug. All right, ho, 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 bah humbug on three. One, two, three. Bah humbug wins. Sorry about that, Christmas lights. Hey, you know, I did the research. Who was it that designed a string of Christmas lights so that when one light goes out, the whole string goes out? You know who that was? The devil. That's who that was. There's a love-hate relationship there, and I like Christmas lights. I like to look at people's Christmas lights, and it's an indication, one of the first indications that Christmas is here, right? We start to see the lights going up in the windows, on the trees, at Terra Plantation. They're going to go up there soon, out on 60. But lights are also symbolic at Christmas time. Now, if, if you're here for the first time, you're a guest, we want to welcome you. We're glad you're here, glad the family's here. Those joining us live stream, nice to have you as well. We are starting a new sermon series for the month of December called Hidden Christmas. So the whole month, we're going to be looking at some of the roots of Christmas that are becoming more and more hidden in our modern culture. Today, we want to talk with this, or start with this concept of Christmas lights. They are symbolic, and uh, the thrust of my message today is very simple. We need the light of Christmas. We need the light of Christmas. So I'm just going to talk about some of the reasons why that is true. Why do we need the light of Christmas? Number one, because our world is dark. It's a dark world. Now, we're going to be working in our scripture work in Isaiah chapter 9 primarily. This is one of the uh, primary messianic prophecies, Christmas prophecies about the birth of the Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Isaiah writes, The people living in darkness... People living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. This world is a dark place. It's a dark place, and the Bible affirms that. In the Bible, darkness can stand for many things, but among others, it can stand for evil and it can stand for ignorance. Now just think about what was going on in the world when Jesus was born, especially in his part of the world. You had violence, injustice, abuse of power, homelessness, refugees fleeing oppression, families torn apart, and bottomless grief. Sounds exactly like today, doesn't it? All of those things go on in our world, and they touch our lives. And ignorance. So, so where are we going to find light? How are we going to resolve the problems in our world and in our lives? In the previous chapter, Isaiah chapter 8, verses 21 and 22, we read this. The prophet says, distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. They will look toward the earth. They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. Back in that day, people were looking toward the earth, focused on themselves to find light, to find truth, to find the, the answer to their problems, whether it was in their philosophers or in their sorcerers, whatever. Today, people look to the market or they look to politics. People look to the state. Everybody's looking to technology, hoping somebody's going to find a solution. We can all get together, bring everybody together and get along. And it never seems to happen. A few years ago, the New York Times had an editorial on Christmas, and this was part of their conclusion. The, the meaning of Christmas, was they wrote, the meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world 
of unity and peace. In other words, the light is within us. We're going to figure it out. We're going to, we're going to realize how to, everybody can get along. That's not the biblical message. The biblical message is really the opposite, that the light is not inside of us. This is, in fact, a, a dark world. The Bible does not agree with those optimists who think we can create our own utopian future. The Bible does not agree with the pessimists who see only a dystopian future. But rather, the biblical message is, yes, it is dark, there is ignorance, and there is evil, but there is hope because a light has dawned. Bertrand Russell was a philosopher, an unbelieving, an atheist philosopher, who sums up very well that approach and, and the hopelessness of science and technology if you don't believe in God and the supernatural. He writes, even more purposeless, more void of meaning is the world which science presents for our belief, that man is the product of causes which had no prevision of the end they were achieving, that his origin, growth, hopes, fears, his loves, his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocations of atoms, that no fire or heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Thank you very much. Aren't you glad you came to church today? That's a dark vision of life. But I'm telling you, nihilism, the philosophy of nothingness, nihilism, is a philosophy that underlies much of pop culture in our world today. Hey, when the, our last trip, when Tame and I went out west, we went to the Lewis and Clark caverns in montana so we're taking the tour of the caverns down there and our guy did something that every guy every every cavern i've toured every cave that i've toured the guy does this and a lot of you have been in a cavern or cave you've taken the tour and i'll bet your guy did this paused at one point and asked our group do you want to see real darkness you want to see real darkness right because we could turn off all the lights in here and even put black cardboard on the windows you would still get some ambient light in here, wouldn't you? But when you're down in a cave, way down in the bowels of the earth, there's no ambient light. We all said, yeah, yeah, we want to see real dark. So I said, turn your cell phones off. And he flicked off the lights there in the cavern. And it was total darkness. You know how it is? When you could have your hand right here. You can't see the hand in front of your face. It's almost a palpable, tangible thing. Gets a little oppressive after a while. After two, two or three minutes, the baby started to cry and the children were whimpering and the women swooned. Not really. But no, it, it, it could start to feel oppressive. I wish I could create that in this room today to convey what I'm trying to convey, which is there's a lot of darkness in this world. Life here is not all sweetness and light. And it touches all of our lives. We all grapple with this. We all struggle with this. We're not going to have the answers from within ourselves. We can't figure it out. We need something from outside to help us. And it's the Christmas light. So why do we need it? Because it's a dark world. Number two, we need the Christmas light because of what that light does. Isaiah 9-2, a light has dawned. A light has dawned. Now the comparison here is to the sun, the dawning of the sun. Sunlight does a number of things. Sunlight gives life. Sunlight reveals the truth. Sunlight brings beauty. Okay, sunlight, and God does these things. Sunlight brings life. There's no life without our sun. The sun 
went away, you know, this world would go cold and die. We've got to have the Son. It's God who gives us life. Paul preached in Acts 17, 28, in God we live and move and have our being. We're borrowing our being right now from God. He is sustaining us. He's keeping us alive, both physically and spiritually. Sunlight reveals the truth. If we're driving at night and we don't have our headlights on, we're probably going to crash because we need that light. If you think about it in this sense, the, the light in our headlights reveals the reality right out in front of the car, reveals the truth right there. And likewise, God tells us what's true, what's real, not what necessarily we think or what we construct or what we deconstruct, but God's Word and His truth tells us what is reality. In fact, in one sense, we couldn't even perceive truth without God because He created our mental faculties and our ability to perceive. 1 John 1.5, John writes, God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. And thirdly, the sunlight reveals beauty. I mean, we have to have sun to have beauty and to have joy. Did you know at least 20% of Americans become depressed during the fall and winter months? This condition is known as seasonal affective disorder. SAD is the acronym, SAD. According to Mayo Clinic, this may be due to decreased, decreased sunlight during the winter months. The onset of SAD has been linked to a drop in the hormone serotonin, the neurotransmitter responsible for a person's mood, and it's because of the reduced sunlight which then triggers sadness and depression. Now here, come the, here are the symptoms, symptoms of SAD. Hopelessness and sadness, irritability, appetite changes, oversleeping, low energy levels, a heavy feeling in the arms and legs, fatigue, concentration problems, increased sensitivity to social rejection, and avoiding social situations. I think I may have sad. What is the solution to sad? Move to Florida. There's no winter here. There's almost no darkness. No, the best solution for sad is light therapy. In fact, light therapy may be better than antidepressants for alleviating this disorder. Sunlight actually helps reset our circadian rhythm. And the moral of the story is too much darkness is not good for us. We need sunlight. Ephesians 5.8 says, For once you were full of darkness, but now you are full of light from the Lord. Oh, we, need the light. we need the light of God in our lives to have truth and to have beauty right? and to have light. So, we need the Christmas light because of what it does. Another reason is because of who the light is. Because of who the light is. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. Now, here may be the most well-known Christmas prophecy from the Old Testament. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace so a child is born who's got the light god and it's a child who's bringing it of course we're it's christmas time we're thinking about the birth of jesus now what's going on in this passage here you will have noted four titles that are applied to the child each one of them is a title of divinity wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace the baby in the manger is God, mighty God. It's the creator. 
To say that we celebrate this at Christmas is too weak. We marvel at this. There is, there's nothing like this in all of literature. No other major religion has this, where the Creator God becomes enfleshed, incarnate, and comes to earth to be among us. There are many, there are many implications that arise from the incarnation of God. That's what we're going to be looking at in this sermon series. I'm just going to mention two briefly right now. One implication is that if this is true, and most of us believe that it is, if that baby is the mighty God and the everlasting Father, the eternal one, he's the creator, then we must obey him. We must yield our lives to him. We must follow him as Lord. We can't just say, we can't just like, you can't just like Jesus. And nobody did. When you read the Gospels, the biographies of Jesus' life, you look at the encounters that he had with people. Nobody was ambivalent about him. Nobody walked away from Jesus and said, man, that guy's very inspiring. I think I'm inspired to live a better life now. It wasn't that. They either loved him and worshipped him as God, or they hated him, or they were afraid of him. But no, no neutral reactions. It's kind of like C.S. Lewis, pretty famous Lord Liar Lunatic argument. You familiar with that? C.S. Lewis said, because of the claims that Jesus made about himself, you can't just say he was a good man. He was either the Lord, because he claimed to be the Son of God, he was either the Lord, or he was lying about his identity, liar, or he was, thought he was God, which, and wasn't, thereby he'd be crazy. So he's either the Lord, liar, or lunatic, but don't lump him in with all the other great teachers and good men. So implication number one, we must, we must follow him as Lord. Implication number two, we would want to. We, would, we wouldn't have to. We would want to follow him and worship him. Wonderful counselor. What makes someone a wonderful counselor? If they can empathize, if they can sympathize, if they can give us good coaching. Usually someone who's been through what we've been through. Somebody was asking me a month ago, can you recommend a couple in your church who's been through some hard times in their marriage and come out the other side? We need to meet with them. Somebody who understands. If we're in recovery from addiction of some kind, where are we going to go? We're going to go where other people are in recovery and somebody's got five years of sobriety and can give us some good wise counsel and advice and, and coaching financially. Somebody who's been through financial issues. One of the reasons, maybe not the primary reason, but certainly one of the reasons why God came to us in this way. The Incarnation was so that he could be a, what the Bible calls a sympathetic high priest. He understands where we are right now, what we are going through, what we have been through. Dorothy Sayers puts it this way. The incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of defeat, despair, pain, humiliation, and death, he was born in poverty and suffered infinite pain all for us and thought it well worth his while. 
Well, that's what makes him a wonderful counselor, and that's beautiful. That's what makes him beautiful to us. When we find something that's beautiful, we seek it out, and we stand before it and adore it. Why do people go down into caverns and caves if we can turn on the light and see the beautiful crystal formations? We look for beauty. We yearn for beauty. And this is what's beautiful about Jesus to us. It's wonderful. Just looking at reasons why we need the Christmas light. And the final one has to do with the way it's given, the way it's offered to us, and that it is given. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, a child is born to us, a son is given to us. It's a gift. And this, you know, in our fight, in our spiritual battle, in our desire to be acceptable to God, in a sense, uh, it's a battle that someone else fights. And this is alluded to in the, in the previous verse, to verse 6 in Isaiah chapter 9, where the prophet writes, Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. What he's saying there is the soldier's outfit can be burnt. These, these weapons of war, you can do away with them. You're not going to need them. Somebody else is going to fight this battle for us. Who is that? Now, we don't get that in chapter 9 here. But we get that in later chapters in Isaiah that point toward a mysterious suffering servant. Let me just read you one of those verses. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. So we have peace with God. How do we have peace with God? The punishment that was on him brought us peace. You know this. Jesus' death on the cross was an atonement, substitutionary death, an atonement. What's an atonement? An atonement, because this is theology, an atonement is a sacrifice that turns away the wrath of God. That's what an atonement is. As sinners, we stood in the path of a wrath of a holy and righteous God. When Jesus died on the cross, he took that wrath on himself, turned it away from us so that we could have peace with God through the forgiveness of our sin. And then when we're baptized and our sins are washed away, God gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to begin to heal us from the inside out, replacing a stone-cold, hard heart, the Old Testament says, with a heart of flesh that's responsive to God. We begin that, we begin that lifelong process of, of sanctification. A son is given to us. We didn't earn it. He didn't arise from among us. He came from outside of it. It's a gift. Some gifts require a little humility to receive. Let's say it's Christmas. We're getting our gifts. And you get over there, and the first gift, the first gift you get and unwrap is a dieting book. Okay, thank you. And then the... You know, the next gift is another book. You unwrap it, and it's how to get along with people. Okay, so I'm overweight, and I'm obnoxious. Thank you very much for those gifts. You know, it takes a little humility. If you've ever been in a financial strait in your life, somebody heard about it, maybe offered you some money to help get us out of that hole, you probably had to swallow your pride to receive that. Some gifts require some humility. There is no gift that requires more humility to receive 
humbling of ourselves than the gospel. In the gospel, we have to admit some truths about ourselves. We don't have the light within us. We don't have the answers inside of us. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We cannot save ourselves. We have to admit all of that. One writer described the gospel this way. The gospel is when I come to understand that I'm more sinful than I had ever imagined. But God's grace is greater than I could have ever believed. And God's grace is greater than our sin. When I was uh, in sixth grade, elementary school, elementary, my day, elementary school was first through sixth grade. I read this book, Joe Panther. Now, if you've ever read this book, come and tell me. I'm looking for anybody else who read Joe Panther. It's fiction, but it's about a Seminole Indian. It was in the Florida section of the library there. And um, my brother and I, we love to read, and he bought me this book after all these years, about a couple of years ago, so it's in my library now. But anyway, one of the stories here about Joe Panther, the Seminole Indian teenager, his dream had always been to work on one of the charter boats that went out from Miami. So he left the Seminole village and he applied, got that job, and he was working on the boat one day, and it was in the morning, he was, he was scrubbing the boat, and there were some tourists down there on the dock, and uh, a family and a little boy, like three-year-old boy, fell off the dock into the water in the harbor, deep water harbor, the boy sank. So Joe Panther, you know, he's up there working on the deck of the boat. He sees what happened, and just reflexively, he dives in and goes down after the boy. The boy sank, 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 all the way to the bottom, and it was deep. Now, being a Seminole, of course, he trained himself, and he knew how to hold his breath for two to three minutes, but he needed all of that, going down through the light water, then the, the greenish water, then to the black water, way down deep. His lungs are bursting, feeling around on the bottom and the mud and the muck. Finally, at the last minute before he has to go back up, he feels the shirt of the boy, grabs him, pushes off with his feet, heads for the surface. More and more light as he gets closer and closer to the surface, but he's not going to make it. He's blacking out. Just before he reaches the surface, his dog jumps in, grabs the boy, takes him to safety, and then a friend of his jumps in and saves him because he had blacked out, and he's the hero. Now, that, that story has always stayed with me, and there are many stories like this. This is a great book for a fifth or a sixth grade sixth grader, but my point is I was reading a description by C.S. Lewis about the Incarnation. And he compares, he compares what Jesus did to a diver. A diver who dives down into the water and goes way down deep into the blackness and the muck and the mire until his lungs are bursting. But he's going down there for a reason, to retrieve a precious object. He grabs it, comes back up to the surface because that's the reason he went down was to bring the whole world back up with him. And the Bible says that when Jesus died, darkness came over all the earth when Jesus died. Why? Because the light of the world was descending down into the darkness to rescue that precious object. Who was that precious, precious object? That was you, and that was me, out of love, and he thought it well worth his while to go down into the muck and the mire and the dark and come back up and bring us with him. Yeah, we need the light of Christmas because of the way it's offered to us as a gift of grace. Our Father in heaven, is, as the Apostle Peter writes, many of these truths at Christmas time may not be new, 
this may be familiar, but as Peter said, it's good for me to remind you. It's good for us to remember what the light means, how much we needed it and still need it, and our world needs it. The light of Christmas, the light of the gospel, the light of our salvation. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.